The following message is from the 2017 IBCD Ministry Weekend with Zach Eswine. We come to our last session thinking about fellow strugglers. And as we walk into that, I was asked a, a good question during the break. And the question had to do with uh, the role of spiritual warfare as it relates to the things we're talking about. And so we've been hinting at that all along. We've said that uh, the sources of depression are biological, circumstantial, and spiritual, that there's a kind of spiritual depression. We've said that uh, the enemy of our soul seizes upon any or all of those, and uh, like a wounded zebra with a lion uh, seeking whom he may devour. And we've reminded ourselves, therefore, when we take up promises and we take up, uh, uh, we, we fight, we plead promises, and then we counter uh, accusation, untruth, lie, and we seek to counter that uh, with those promises and the pleading prayer in the context of that full creation, providence, uh, all the helps that have been given us in the Lord. But I can say just a couple more things uh, for our time together. Remember uh, that our Lord Jesus, when he was in the wilderness, tempted by the devil, that that devil uh, left, it says, until a more opportune time. And so the enemy of our soul uh, is an ongoing uh, nemesis in and out of opportune times. The thing the enemy does is seize upon weak moments in our life. This is why we plead our weakness with the Lord. We plead our weakness. Perhaps you remember Zechariah chapter 3 in which Joshua the high priest is standing before the Lord. And the accuser, the enemy, is on his right hand accusing him. Now, in real life, uh, Joshua the high priest would be uh, adorned in royal robes. But in this vision, uh, he is wearing filthy rags. So the implication here is the accuser, it's like a courtroom, the high priest, who's the one that's supposed to be an intermediary between God and man in that sacrificial system, he's before the Lord, he's wearing filthy rags, he is not fit to be there, and the accuser is saying to God, this high priest has no right to be in your presence. And the response of God in Zechariah 3 is really a picture taken up by Jesus in the prodigal son, the story of the, the two sons in Luke 15. Is that the right verse, Luke 15? And, uh, and the answer is, the accuser says, he has no right. The answer of the Lord is silence. The Lord silences the accuser. and then goes through a whole procession of putting new clothes on Joshua. Now the thing about that is this. The accuser in that particular case was right. Joshua, even a high priest, is in the presence of God covered with filthy rags. But Satan no longer has the right 
He's right. Joshua doesn't measure up. But he has no right to say it. Why? Because God the Father, after saying silence, says this, isn't this one that I have plucked from the fire? Joshua's appeal isn't to himself. He has no appeal. His only hope is that he has an advocate. That's why when we were saying fight, as Spurgeon taught us, it's as if we're saying, okay, you're right. I have done this or that, but Jesus. You're right. People have said this or that, but Jesus. You're right. I don't feel this or that, but Jesus. We are ones plucked by the fire. This is why Charles Spurgeon would say that your hope isn't even, your, your feelings aren't your hope. Your reasoning isn't your hope because sometimes your reasoning is dulled and fogged and sometimes your feelings are gone. Your faith is like a mustard seed and it's unfelt. You have faith but no assurance of it. And he would say, assurance doesn't save you. The feltness doesn't save you. The right reasoning doesn't even save you. What saves you is Jesus. And so, take heart, he would say, you in the midst of your howling desert, unable to reason, struggling to feel, struggling even to remember the Lord. Take heart, he remembers you. The steadfast love of the Lord endures. He will not quit on his own. And so in those moments when feelings and reasonings fail us, he will never fail. This is why the Apostle Paul, we see both sides of that going on when he talks about the thorn in the flesh. A messenger from Satan, he says, to torment him. What do you think the messages of Satan would? If Satan sent a messenger to the Apostle Paul, what do you think his message would be? Paul, you're so awesome. Paul, you're a son of the king. Paul, stand in the promises. Paul, God so loved you that he forgave you. He died for you. He rose from you. He ascended for you. Paul, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. That is not what a messenger of Satan has to say. A messenger of Satan has to say, you're an outcast. You're abandoned. Look at these criticizers you have. Look at them. Their lives flourish and they believe in God. Look at you. You're in prison all the time. People hate you. You're doing something wrong. The double wound. The, the thorn itself and the messages that attend it. And in that case, it is not removed. He prayed three times, he said. He's pleading promises. The Lord does not take it away, but rather answers by saying, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul, your greatest hope is not the absence of this thorn. Your greatest hope is the presence of Jesus' grace. The grace that is in Christ, Paul, 
If you have my grace, then no matter this thorn, I hold you and you are mine. And so Paul says, okay, I will boast in my weaknesses. I'm a troubled man. I have calamities. I have hardships. I'm full of weakness. You can read it. The enemy of our soul seizes opportune moments to bring messages that are contrary to the gospel. And grace in Christ is our sufficiency, not because we feel it or even reason well every moment of our life, but because we are held and no one can snatch us out of our hands, Jesus says, as our shepherd. Finally, the, the pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones reminded us when we asked the question, how do we know if Satan is sending us a message? He reminded us that our thoughts come from at least one of three places. First of all, they just come from ourselves. We're just thinking about stuff. Second of all, they can come from the Spirit of God in Christ, buying with his word. Third of all, it can come from our enemy. I'd probably add a fourth. It can come from other people. But, well, how do you know the difference between the thought you're thinking and the thought that's coming from the enemy? He said, it's usually like this. The thought you're thinking, you're meditating on, you're cultivating. If that turns into some sinful way or some glorious way, you've been making much of it and getting yourself there. The thought from our enemy usually comes out of nowhere. It's as if it comes from the outside. You're riding along thinking about the sunshine and all of a sudden you have a, a nightmarish thought about the death of your family. There's no connection between the situation you're in, the thing you were thinking about, and what you were doing. It comes upon you as if from the outside like that. You are uh, just at work, you know, uh, doing your work. And all of a sudden, you have a, a thought of some sinful invitation. No, you, weren't, you weren't even thinking about any of that. What, you, what we do in those cases is we begin to discern that, and we just say, Lord, uh, my accuser has just started hand-to-hand -hand combat with me, and I know I was not thinking that way. And you know that is not my heart because of you. Help. Now, some of us think because we've had the thought, we've already lost. But what you need to know is because you've had that thought, the fight just started. Temptation is not sin. Jesus, our Lord, was tempted in every way but without sin. The fact that you've been tempted does not yet mean you have sinned. You have been tempted. Now it's your move. Fight. If you are in the midst of wounded zebra, laying there helpless as your roaring lion seeks to devour you, starts to toy with you, 
All you need is a mustard seed. You have no felt faith. You have no depth of reason faith. All you have is the word Jesus because he's the name above every name to you. And that, dear one, is more than enough. And so our enemy is at work in all of this making of these other aspects of depression and wreaking havoc with them. And we remind ourselves, by the way, that the devil cannot read your mind. It's a finite creature. He's not omnipotent or omniscient or omnipresent. It's an angelic being. It can only be at one place at one time. He cannot read your thoughts. I asked a professor one time, David Jones, in the library. I interrupted him. I was a student, long hair to hear as a student in my jeans, asking him, Dr. Jones, if the devil can't read my mind, how does he seem to know what to whisper at me? Dr. Jones just paused for a moment, and he said, well, he's a good psychologist. So what do you mean by that? In our circles, he might have just said a counselor. But what do you mean by that? Well, he's been around a long time. He's seen a lot of people. He knows people like you. He knows our, the ways of human beings. He's clever and shrewd that way. But he often misses the mark if we learn to discern some of these things we're talking about. There's much more to say, but perhaps that's a little bit more to get us going where we need to go. When we think about this biblical mentoring, we've just mentioned the Apostle Paul. We've just mentioned our Lord Jesus in the wilderness. We've just mentioned Joshua, the high priest of vision in Zechariah. We've just mentioned Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's no biblical figure, but nonetheless a, a pastor who sought to be faithful in what he had to say. We're looking at a mentoring community. God gives us community to walk through these things together. And we want to start with the man of sorrows, chief, supreme, primary, central to our community. This is what Charles Spurgeon said. Personally, I bear witness that it has been to me in seasons of great pain, superlatively comfortable to know that in every pang which racks his people, the Lord Jesus has a fellow feeling. We are not alone, for one like unto the Son of Man walks the furnace with us. He's drawing upon that imagery from Daniel when the three men were thrown into the fiery furnace, but there was a fourth with them in the furnace. Didn't remove them from the furnace, was with them in it. He's drawing upon that imagery. Spurgeon would say this, Jesus suffered depression too. This fellow feeling, this empathy, this insider information about gloom and depression, he says is because Jesus experienced it himself. As a matter of fact, when he points us to the Garden of Gethsemane, he calls it a picture of the mental depression of Jesus. 
Now this becomes important for understanding something Spurgeon says that I never thought of ever. He will say it this way, and at first, it startles us. He says this, sometimes a person in the midst of their sorrows and suffering will not be comforted by your talk of heaven. And they will not be comforted by your talk of resurrection. And they will not be comforted by your talk of forgiveness of sins on the cross because their misery is so palpably felt. What they need is not the Jesus of the empty tomb, not the Jesus of the cross. They need the Jesus of Gethsemane. The one who sweat like blood. The one who in his hour of most need, the one who served everyone else, in his hour of most need, not one friend would be with him they would sleep instead. He says, we need to know the garden of sorrow, the mental depression of Jesus. Bodily pain should help us to understand the cross, but mental depression should make us apt scholars of Gethsemane. The sympathy of Jesus is the next most precious thing to his sacrifice. Unquote. So when the New Testament book of Hebrews says that Jesus is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. For Charles Spurgeon, that includes our depression. And so he sets his gloom and mental despondency and harassment and all into the larger story of the sympathy of Christ who is no distant observer writing the problem of pain but is also an insider who's experienced it writing, you know, a grief observed. And we look to Christ. The result, we find a place of rest within the storyline of Jesus Quote, how completely it takes the bitterness out of grief to know that it once was suffered by him. The afflicted do not so much look for comfort to Christ as he will come a second time as to Christ as he came the first time, a weary man and full of woes. Why? Because we ourselves are weary and full of woe with no finishing light in sight. The glories of Christ, this is a remarkable statement. If I said it, we'd all be in try. I'd be like, you know, but it's Spurgeon, so I hide behind him. Even the glories of Christ afford no such consolation to afflicted spirits. Do you see what he's saying? In the deepest, darkest sorrows, it is not the glory of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, all the victories of Christ over the tomb and over the cross and his coming again that brings hope. In those occasions, it is the fact of the garden of Gethsemane, the betrayal of Christ, 
the abandonment of Jesus, the fact that on the cross he takes up our plea, why have you forsaken me? He not only on the cross dies for our sins, he takes up the cry of the victim and raises the ancient question, how is it that I am suffering and you do nothing? It is the suffering of Christ, the humiliation of Christ, he says, that brings us into the fellow feeling, the fellowship of our Savior. He is not a distant and cold counselor. He is wonderful counselor. And what makes him so? Because he has experienced our grief and taken it upon himself. So, Jesus is, quote, the chief mourner who above all others could say, I am the man that hath seen affliction. To feel in our being that the God to whom we cry has himself suffered as we do enables us to feel that we are not alone and that God is not cruel. Spurgeon goes on to talk about how Jesus is not like a, a general who stands in the back and sends all his soldiers forward. Jesus is instead the general who is at the front and is the first one to charge so that he himself has already gone first to suffer the miseries and woes of this fallen world including mental anguish so that we who suffer it can know we have a friend. And how different this is from just about every other way any other religion pictures God. We have the question, why does God allow suffering? But we also have the question, why does God suffer it with us? And for Charles Spurgeon, he felt, for those of us who would offer care, we need to become apt scholars of Gethsemane, the sufferings of Christ, the sympathy of Jesus, as one who is with us and knows our pain. Flowing out of the centrality of Christ, Elijah is also prominent in Spurgeon's sermons and talk. This is the way he opens one of his sermons. Quote, this week has been in some respects the crowning week of my life, but it closed with a horror of great darkness of which I will say more, no more than this. He speaks of his propensity for highs and lows. And then he says, I suppose that some brethren neither have much elevation or depression. I could almost wish, wish to share their peaceful life. For I am much tossed up and down, and although my joy is greater than the most of men, my depression of spirit is such as few can have an idea of. 
highs, lows, swinging from one to the other, is what he's saying about himself and what a challenge it is. And he's saying that in light of Elijah, who just a few days earlier was standing, you know, on Mount Carmel, overcoming uh, all that was opposed to God with great courage. And now here he is huddled, scared, asking to die. And Spurgeon says he himself finds himself in that story in the highs and lows that he too has. High exaltations involve deep depressions, he says. You can count on it that if you have a high light in your life, often a low moment comes. Now we might say because of adrenaline. Those who preach and teach regularly, if you regularly preach on a Sunday, it usually happens to you on Monday. If you regularly preach or lead a small group on Wednesdays, it sometimes it's on Thursdays it happens to you. But it is the fact that the whole week, everything you're doing, you finally cross the finish line of that last sermon for the ministry of the week, and then that night perhaps you can't sleep very well, and then the next day, it's Blue Monday. And part of that has everything to do with your body. You're having an adrenaline drop. It isn't because you're somehow more sinful today than you were on Thursday. It is because your body and the energy required for the high moment is now readjusting to what you need and we drop. I was talking to a pastor. He wrote, this was a couple years ago now, and he wrote, and uh, he was in the midst of his first pastorate, just feeling, he was just struggling with various kinds of sadness and sorrows and apathy and everything else, and I was asking questions to understand about it, and he, he shared that he had just finished uh, his doctor of ministry. And I said, when you say just finished, what, what do you mean? It was just in the last couple of months he had just finished his doctor of ministry. He graduated. And I said, well, no wonder you're sad. And he thought to himself, he thought he was just spiraling down in spiritual apathy and, and somehow he was somehow sinning worse than he had ever sinned when the fact was he had just been a pastor and three years as a family man of a doctoral rhythm. That means the, the hours of days he was putting in Morning and night, morning and night, morning and night with the constant pressure of trying to get that thing finished with the ongoing work of everything in the new pastorate and the father with the wife and little kids. And finally, that three or five year sprint, whatever it was for him of that doctor of ministry stuff is gone. And now he's at home at night with nothing he has to do and he's miserable. Because three to five years of always having something to do at night is called a habit. And your body adjusts to get you to what you need for 16-hour days. It's not meant to do that for long. And so suddenly that is removed from your life. You're going to crash. Not because now you're somehow spiritually at fault, but because you have a body 
and you have an adjustment. So let's do some things in light of that as we talked. Sometimes it's helpful to know <laughs> that there's a physical reality involved in what's going on. Here's some things that he says from the, his thoughts on Elijah. Number one, no matter how deep you fall, grace goes deeper still. What was under Elijah when he fell down in that fainting fit under the juniper tree? Why, underneath were the everlasting arms. No matter how far you fall in your depression, quote, the eternal arms shall be lower than you are. What a remarkable thought. No matter how far you fall, the arms of the Lord will be lower than you. That means to catch you. Second, grace goes deeper no matter what the cause. Quote, brethren, there are many such occasions in which the spirit sinks, sometimes through a sense of sin, sometimes through disappointments, through desertions of friends, through beholding the decay of the Lord's work, through a lack of success in our ministry, or a thousand other mischiefs which may all cast us low. And Jesus is able to sympathize with us and hold us no matter what. He can handle it. Listen to how one of the sermons, Charles, he just starts his sermon this way. I am quite out of order for addressing you tonight. I feel extremely unwell, excessively heavy, and exceedingly depressed. <laughs> Can you imagine if you walk in on Sunday morning and that's how your pastor starts? <laughs> but what aided him that night, he said, was the pleasure of trying to say a few words about the gospel to those who had gathered. Something about Jesus is lovely to him. The pleasure of telling the larger story of Jesus' suffering and sympathy can mysteriously strengthen us in our depression. This telling of stories, I've tried to give you some hints of it all along the way, little glimpses of how he'll just talk in front of his congregation and how he's honest about when he's feeling heavy, when he's out of sorts, when he's depressed of soul, and publicly how he had to take a break three months out of the year eventually and had to start saying no to speaking engagements and all these kinds of things and how it was that that congregation and him walked through those things. And we ask ourselves about this telling of our stories. And now we begin to realize that centrally located in our Lord Jesus Christ, there are these other figures like Paul with his thorn and Elijah under the juniper tree and others throughout Scripture that are our fellow mentors. But now we realize that Spurgeon is one himself. And in Christ, we learn from him how to talk about our own struggle. Number one, we tell our stories not for sympathy. Not to steal another story for our own attention. We tell our stories in order to sympathize. So we don't tell our story to photobomb anyone 
We don't tell our story so that we can suddenly take a verbal selfie in front of other people. We tell our story if and when the fellow feeling of a shared pain can bring sympathy and hope. That means a lot of us will just not tell our stories because we're not ready yet to do it without it being a selfie. Right now, we're a, a story thief. We're basically, if someone shares a story, we take it and run with it and then make it our own. But when our attention is on the other, we can share things like this, quote, sharp bodily pain succeeded mental depression. And this was accompanied both by bereavement and affliction in the person of one dear as life. The waters rolled in continually, wave upon wave. I do not mention this to exact sympathy, Charles Spurgeon said, but simply to let the reader see that I am no dry land sailor. I know the roll of the billows and the rush of the winds. We tell our story, secondly, not because we wanted this experience, but because we've had this experience. Well, says one, I do not want to feel that sort of treatment. No, but suppose you had felt it. The next time you meet with a brother who was locked up in the castle of giant despair, you would know how to sympathize with him. Three, we tell our stories so that sufferers know that Jesus feels not for their strengths, but for their infirmities. I have to say, this is a constant constant battle in congregation and theological life in Christ. Because in congregation and as Christians, we are constantly tempted to get everybody right. We're constantly trying to get everybody to get right. That unwittingly, we focus only on what they're not by showing them what they're supposed to be and then the condemnation is what they feel. When what we are meant to do is to recognize Jesus is not only calling us to that life in him, but he is mindful of our infirmities. Here's what he says. Our pain, our depression, our trembling, our sensitiveness, he is touched with these, though he falls not into the sin which too often becomes of them. Hold fast this truth for it may greatly tend to your consolation on another day. Jesus is touched not with a feeling of your strength, but of your infirmity. As the mother feels with the weakness of her babe, so does Jesus feel with the poorest, saddest, and weakest of his own. Four, we tell our stories to serve realistic hope. Quote, if you have passed through depression of mind and the Lord has appeared to be your comfort, lay yourself out to help others who are where you used to be, unquote. So this transparency, this redemptive vulnerability of, the, of uh, Charles Spurgeon draws upon the teaching of the Apostle Paul. It's a fact historically that uh, the printing uh, the printer, the local printer, complained about Charles Spurgeon. You remember, they printed his sermons every week. And uh, a printing press at that time required block letters that you put in, right? The letter I was being worn out 
too quickly because of how often Spurgeon used the, 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 the word I in his sermons. And there was complaint. And he was criticized by his reformed community for talking too much about himself. And his defense was the Apostle Paul, who is always, if you haven't noticed, talking about himself. Reread Paul's letters. Notice how many times he says, I, us, me, we. But here's the thing. Paul never talks about him such a, in such a way that we find ourselves saying, oh, poor Paul. He's always giving out testimony in such a way that we hear about his thorn, we hear about his calamities, his grievances, the fact that he covets, we hear about his story, we hear about all of this stuff, that he's the chief of sinners, the worst of sinners. We hear about all this stuff, and somehow we're left thinking about Jesus. And he tells us why. I'm a clay jar, he says. I'm like a broken, chipped piece of pottery so that you can see that the treasure within me is not my own, that the strength comes from him. And sometimes someone will ask, well, how do you know how to share about something? And I'll just basically say this because it's a help to me. There's clay jar talk and there's the treasure. If you talk about the clay jar, you got to talk about the treasure. If you can't talk about the treasure yet, don't mention the clay jar. And maybe, just maybe, there are some of us who need to learn when we talk about the treasure to know about the clay jar. Now, why this becomes important is because of what I'm about to remind us of is that he is so honest that even when it comes to the desire to die, the desire to kill ourselves, he gives us language. This is Charles Spurgeon. Quote, I wonder every day that there are not more suicides considering the troubles of this life. He often found language for this in the story of Job, whose profound description of misery not only reveals why in our afflictions of body and mind we'd want to die, but also the manifest mercy of God who would inspire such grief words and call them to Scripture. Job said this. This is something that Spurgeon turns to. I have months of emptiness and nights of misery are apportioned to me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I rise? But the night is long and I am full of tossing till the dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. My eye will never again see good. When I say, my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. I loathe my life. What is man that you visit him every morning and test him every moment? How long will you not look away from me nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? This is the Bible. 
This is Job talking to God. Charles draws upon these sacred words of anguish. In the message, he applies them to himself so that those who want to die will find in their preacher one who understands. He says, I too could say with Job, my soul chooseth strangling rather than life. Quote, I could readily enough have laid violent hands upon myself to escape from my misery. In fact, Spurgeon makes it clear that he's had this desire to die more than once. When referring to Elijah's prayer to die in 1 Kings 19.4, he refers to his own experience and he says this, I know one who, in the bitterness of his soul, has often prayed it. Lord, just let me die. There is our Reformed Baptist megachurch pastor telling his congregation he has prayed to die because of the miseries that he's felt and experienced. Listen to what he says about Elijah. Quote, when Elijah asked to die, quote, it was the most rational thing in the world for Elijah to be sick at heart and to desire to die. It is the most rational thing in the world. We know about irrational, irrational reasons that we think of ending our life. He's saying it is rational. Look at the king and queen he has to live under. There is no lobby group. There is no political watchdog. He has no vote. He has a death threat on his life. His miseries were not illusory, but real. His wish for death did not reveal his insanity, but demonstrated the opposite. Quote, a desire to depart when it arises from wisdom and knowledge and from a general survey of things below is very proper. Unquote. Are, we, are you uncomfortable yet? If you're here wondering about your own life and whether you should end it, I hope you find comfort because this man is speaking your language and mine. He says on the basis of the Apostle Paul, who said, I don't know whether I would stay or go home with you. Is it better to die or to stay here? Spurgeon is saying, from that vantage point of the miseries of this life and all that goes on and the wretchedness we experience, it is a proper thing to say, I would like to die. And the mercy of God asserts itself in the scriptures again, the experience of one saint described on the sacred pages is instructive to others. Even saints can desire to die. We too can say in the midst of all that grieves us with Solomon and Ecclesiastes 2, I hated life. And with Job, Jeremiah, and Solomon, we too can feel that it were better that we had never been born. And yet, Spurgeon didn't act on that desire. To begin with, he points out to us that all of those folks in the scripture asked for God to take their life rather than seeking to take it themselves. And he gives a message called Paul's desire to depart. 
which means Paul's desire to die. Can you imagine if you were coming in on this coming Sunday and you looked in the bulletin and that was your pastor's title? <laughs> Paul's desire to die. He identifies the tragedy of all or nothing convictions that drown us in selfishness. These messages that start to come in and intrude on the proper, wise realization that it is rational to want this life to end and all the illusory stuff that then uh, crowds in on all of that and the messages go like this. Circumstances are always hard. Life will only be bad, always. People are always terrible. People will never change, will always do what's wrong. I'm disappointed. I lost. Without him or her or it, I'm nothing. I can't live without them or it or with this failure. I'm embarrassed. I can't live with others mocking my shame. I'm mistreated. I always will be. I will never be the same. Nothing new could ever happen to me. I didn't get what I wanted. If I can't have it my way, there's no point. I will have it my way or no way. I'm guilty. I've done terrible things. I can never recover from the wrong I've done. It is the all or nothing whisper of our accuser the all-or-nothing way of thinking. It is either all good or it is all bad. It is either all bad or it's never good. People will always. It will never be. And he begins to talk about the arrogance that creeps in, that creeps in to our misery, that somehow we know the future. We believe we can declare what the next hundred years will bring. It will always and never when in truth, we're just a suffering servant who knows very little and is finding it very hard to get through a complexity we cannot reduce with the sympathy of our Savior Jesus. So Spurgeon goes back to Elijah and he says this. He reminds us that if Elijah, what if Elijah had got his prayer and died? For those of you who know the scriptures and where that takes place in the storyline of Elijah's life, what you know is that so much came afterward. So much of Elijah's greatest moments are after that event that continue on. If Elijah had known then every moment of meaning that still awaited him on Horeb or on behalf of Naboth or with Elisha or for the school of the prophets or the wondrous irony of a chariot of fire, Elijah would have wanted to live. Quote, You do not know, brother, how much there is for you yet to live for. And you, my sister, do not talk about dying, for you also have a great deal more to do. You will be like men that dream, and your mouth shall be filled with laughter, and your tongue with singing, and you will see, say, the Lord hath done great things for us. In other words, when Elijah said, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, he was mistaken in his judgment. He was actually wrong in his assessment. If anything, if we are in that place, we've had our desire to die 
made rational, proper, understandable, even wise. And yet now we are gently being invited to see, do we think we are at our most rational at this moment? Do we think we see most clearly the future and everything that will come? No, we cannot. And so, like Job, Moses, Elijah, and Jonah, and Paul, we express such desires before the Lord. But we don't act upon them ourselves. This is difficult because some of us, when we express this desire for death, a Christian community not saturated in the scriptures or these aspects of the scriptures has no capacity to handle it. And Spurgeon says, others think you foolish, call you nervous, and bid you rally yourself, but they know not your case. Did they understand it, they would not mock you with such admonitions. I have suffered as much bodily pain as most here present, he says. And I know also about as much of depression of spirit at times as anyone. Yet I would not change with the most healthy man or the most wealthy man or the most learned man or the most eminent man in all the world if I had to give up my faith in Jesus Christ tried as it sometimes is. He says, I am sure that I have run more swiftly with a lame leg than I ever did with a sound one. I am certain that I have seen more in the dark than ever I saw in the light, more stars most certainly, more things in heaven if fewer things on earth. The anvil, the fire, and the hammer are the making of us. We do not get fashioned much by anything else. That heavy hammer falling on us helps to shape us. Therefore, let affliction and trouble and trial come. That is not a health and wealth message, is it? <laughs> I say a great deal more about suicide in the book that's beyond our time and the tenderness required. But dear ones, you who have felt that desire to take violent hands to yourself, he knows why you would. And the invitation is to trust him for your future, for you don't yet know what will come. There was a certain picture as we close that, that Charles Spurgeon cherished. The engraver portrayed the moment in Pilgrim's Progress in which Christian panics swallowed up by the deeps of a river and going under. This is, I believe, on his way to heaven, the celestial city. He has to cross a river, which is symbolic of his death. He's dying. And he's going across the river, and he falls. He's swallowed up, and he's panicking. But his companion, hopeful, is on the side, <laughs> pushing up with his arm around Christian, and lifting up his hand, shouting, Fear not, brother, I feel the bottom. Do you see the picture? He's gasping and treading water. He doesn't realize he could put his feet down and stand. So a brother hopeful 
with this picture on his mind. This preacher, he was so familiar with sorrows, he then rejoices with those who are listening to him in this message. This is just what Jesus does in our trials, he proclaims. He puts his arm around us, points up and says, Fear not, the water may be deep, but the bottom is good. It may be that you suffer from a mental sickness in the form of depression of spirit. Things look very dark and your heart is very heavy. When life is like a foggy day, when providence is cloudy and stormy, and you are caught in a hurricane, when your soul is exceedingly sorrowful and you are bruised as a cluster trodden in the wine press, yet cling close to God and never let go of your reverent fear of Him. However exceptional and unusual may be your trial, yet with Job whisper these words, though He slay me, yet will I trust Him. What a privilege it must have been to have heard such language coming from a pulpit. What a privilege that meditating upon the man of sorrows would lead a pastor to such conclusions. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. All of this we gather up and hold up to you, asking you that you will make of it all the good that you intend. In Jesus' name, amen. Copyright 2017, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.